All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Hello and welcome to the actual Anarchy Podcast, podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian and anarcho-capitalist perspective. And tonight is episode 183 of the show, and we're going to be having an amazing guest come back and join us. He's been on a bit of a hiatus for a little while now, but he always has something good to say, and so we will have him on. And even one of his episodes recently, or not so recently, a couple of years ago, was actually on this very topic, American Psycho, the movie of in question tonight. And so I will be posting that on the show notes page as well, but uh, we'll be getting lots of insights from him. This is episode 183 of this show. You can find the show notes more at actualanarchy.com slash 183. And uh, Robert and I are your hosts. And Robert, uh, just checking in with uh-huh. you. Um, you're in yep. FEMA region 10, as am I. I actually double checked this recently just to make sure because for a long time, I keep saying whichever FEMA region we're in, six or 10 or whichever, but I've actually looked into it and we are in fact in 10 and uh, as far as I know, I'm still in phase one of the reopening uh, recovery plan. Have you moved up uh, beyond that into any additional higher phase numbers? Well, first of all, I like how you say I looked into it, meaning you did a quick Google search or a Google image search and you found uh, some image that said that we're in FEMA Region 10, which is probably accurate and who cares? Um, yes, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're supposedly moving into phase two within the next couple of weeks. We've got the literature out from the county health department. And it's as draconian as reported on earlier by the uh, governor. And uh, we'll see how it eventually goes. I don't see us complying too strictly to their recommendations, especially with the uh, what, getting everybody's name and email address that dines in. I mean, they, they, they add in these restrictions and then they act like it's free labor to do this. Like we don't have, we can't necessarily afford a full-time staff member to man the handwashing station and to make sure everybody's six feet apart at all times, and to spray down the tables after use, and the condiments after use, and the credit card machine after use, and get everybody's names and email addresses, and all the other compliance things. They act like it's just, well, you just do it. Just just do it. It's not like there's any cost to it. So that's fun. We'll be less efficient, less profitable. Well, you know, nothing like making an already struggling business struggle even more. That's uh government always has the boot on your neck. And the funny thing is that they they really don't see this as a cost on anything. Like we've always talked about this, like you don't just pay monetarily, like your time, your effort, whatever. That's all part of the cost. It's part of the cost equation in subjective value on whether you're going to do something or not. And so of course they don't capture that because it doesn't show up in their statistics. They can only look at the dollar amounts or the hour amounts expended, something along those lines. And so to them, it totally makes sense that, oh, well, we'll just decree this and it'll be so and look it didn't cost anything so therefore it should be just frictionless you know very easy to do well it doesn't cost them anything to put these measures into place and they'd have no idea about how the economy actually runs or what's actually happening in the economy so i mean did they really consult a bunch of economists and have them go well your average restaurant is going to have to expend six paid employee hours to comply with all this stuff 
Did they? I doubt it. And I just pulled that number out of my ass, but I'm sure it's closer than anything they came up with. That's a good point. <laughs> they usually uh, have some pretty fantastical modeling in their algorithms and whatnot, as we've seen with the, uh, uh, you can't even say the, the words anymore because apparently that gets you um, fact-checked or against community standards on Facebook these days. You can't even say C-O-R-A-N-I-V, whatever the rest of it is. Anyway, we should probably get into the last night's sports of the show because otherwise you and I will just talk all night and we'll expend all the time that Patrick, our guest from Liberty Weekly, has available. He only had 90 minutes before Bonnie comes home it's a Bonnie situation from Pulp Fiction, so we better get into it. Right it's got some videotapes to return. It's got to return some videotapes. That's right. All right, here we go. Hey, everyone. It's Daniel Elwood and Robert Johnson, and we are The Last Nighters. You can find us on the Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. Check out thelaunchpadmedia.com. You can also find... This episode at lastnighters.com slash 126, and we're going to be doing an episode about American Psycho, the movie that came out and made Christian Bale a thing. Uh, came out in the year 2000, and uh, we have a special guest, Pat McFarland of Liberty Weekly. He hasn't been so active on uh, his show lately, but we are resurrecting him for just a, a, a brief appearance here. And he actually has done an episode related to American Psycho back when he was doing uh, a segment called Thought Crime Thursday. We'll have that on the show notes page as well. But welcome back to the show, Pat. It's always a pleasure to have you on, sir. And uh, if you can remind us uh, where your website is and kind of what you did on it or do on it and, and what your plans are for the future. And then we'll get into the Google description on this here movie. Hey, everybody. Uh, Patrick McFarlane here. I am the host of, Lib of the Liberty Weekly podcast, libertyweekly.net. Um, I am a practicing attorney. I do um civil rights work and personal injury primarily personal injury uh i'm licensed to practice in wisconsin been practicing for about two years now um and i'm enjoying the the joys of fatherhood currently and that's kind of really gotten in the way of my work that i used to do at libertyweekly.net uh, but that's fine um i really enjoy being a dad and there are some things that are more important than messing around on the internet at least right now so Hopefully in the future, I'm hoping to at least hang on to the URL and keep it active. Um, it'd be nice to get back to doing some more podcasting work or writing, but that's always something that's available to me. So um, just getting secure in my practice and learning how to be a dad and we'll see what happens. But I'm glad to be back tonight. Yeah, we always enjoy having you on. We've done a couple of summertime series with you. I think uh, the first time was when you were trying to pass the bar exam or, or going through that process. And we did a... Um, series on wild wild country which was really awesome we had various other podcast hosts on with us doing every episode you were on the first episode and i think the last episode and then last summer when your kid was born we did several episodes of star trek the next generation which i thought was really awesome that's a thought-provoking show at least many of the episodes are and there's always these uh, moral dilemmas and conundrums that picard always seems to navigate through flawlessly uh, in, in that. And so that was a lot of fun. And I wouldn't mind doing more of that if you ever have the time. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah. It had the ad added bonus of making me discover Star Trek, the next generation, which is a really good show. And I don't know how I missed out on it, but I did. I was a Stargate guy as we talked about, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I will post, uh, the links to those episodes on the show notes page here, lastnighters.com slash one twenty six. Also everyone, if you like what we do here and you want to support us, you can Hit us up at lastnighters.com slash Patreon. 
And I just started a new uh, kind of feature related to that. And that is to do a little ticker tape parade for the people who do support us. So you'll see some names on here. Uh, Dylan is the most recent Patreon. And so thank you for joining us and supporting the work that we do here. Uh, Dylan, we do appreciate that. And, uh, and if anyone else would like to support us as well, go to lastnight.com slash Patreon. Another way you can support us is going to Robert's website, trubster.com, where he sells his wares of his artistic creations on various printed projects or items like T-shirts, hats, mugs, uh, what have you. In fact, Robert, if you want to speak to that for just a moment, before we get into the Google description, and I'll go to you for your opening salvo, because I, I threw you off last time on Apocalypse Now, and I, I want to make amends for that. Well, okay. Um, yeah, I just do some silly kind of, uh, you know, libertarian voluntarist type stuff at tripster.com. Um, I need to get back on doing more of that. It's something I haven't done in a while, but I should definitely do it. Although I'm super stoked. They've got, um, I think they added masks recently. So that's really exciting. I, I like, uh, I've seen an NPC mask recently mm. where it's just like the little triangle nose and it's a gray, you know, gray mask with a black triangle nose. Mm -hmm. So you can, you can emit your virtue signals uh, very appropriately wearing that. No, that's some strong, strong stuff there. I like it. All right. Well, check it out. Trubster.com. That's T-R-U-B-B-S-T-E-R. -B -B -E and let's get on with the show, shall we? So American Psycho came out in the year 2000. It almost sounds like the future. Uh, it's a horror slash satire film. One hour and 44 minutes. 7.6 IMDb. 69% on Rotten Tomatoes. And 88% of Google users like it. The description is, in New York City in 1987, a handsome young urban professional, otherwise known as Yuppie, uh, Patrick, Patrick Bateman, played by Christian Bale, lives a second life as a gruesome serial killer by night. The cast is filled by the detective Willem Dafoe, the fiance Reese Witherspoon, the mistress Samantha Mathis, the co-worker Jared Leto, and the secretary Chloe Savigny. This is a biting rye comedy examining the elements that make a man a monster. It came out on April 14th, the year 2000. Director Mary Heron, a box office of $34.3 million, and is based on a novel by brett easton ellis which is what um patrick i think you were reading a, a segment of on your episode of liberty weekly thought crime thursday talking about this um this vehicle or this property uh whatever the right term is but uh robert let's go to you for your opening salvo and your take on the google description please well i i don't know if i'd call it a comedy it's definitely have a few amusing moments but um the main character seems to be having a better time than i was in this one um I, I didn't really quite understand the character. It seemed to be this kind of yuppie in the eighties, this wall street kind of cocaine life type person, kind of like the um, Wolf of wall street sort of uh, takedown. But it also at the same time tried to be some sort of an expert on pathology and like psychosis and like sociopathy. And I, I don't know. It didn't, it didn't exactly ring entirely true for me as a character, but it was a fun character study. Um, for the most part, although a lot of the scenes were just completely unbelievable because you'd have literally almost the entire cast, except for his girlfriend and his circle of friends and his secretary, like mistake him for somebody else, which is OK. But people aren't like totally stupid. And I don't know. There's just a lot of times in the film when I was like, that would never happen. No, no, that's dumb. Okay, so I mean, you're trying to create this world where we're trying to explore this character, but the world they create is so kind of unbelievable that uh, it didn't quite ring true for me. Didn't didn't really bring it home. Although it was it was an entertaining film. Don't get me wrong. 
and it was fun to see all the different like famous actors when they were young. But um, I don't know. It seemed like it was trying really hard to say something really cool, but it just didn't seem to say much of anything to me. That's yeah, I think, I think there's a lot to that. I, I think that they were trying to go for kind of this um, Fight Club vibe. Like I, I saw some of the initial notes when this came out, like, oh, it's the next Fight Club or whatever. So they're going for that sort of angle of being um, overly gruesome, but also kind of almost tongue in cheek, but biting sort of satire and going to extremes. So I think you're right that those were unbelievable situations, but they were trying to push those things all the way to the edge to where people are so consumed by consumerism that they don't even um, recognize each other. So like the humanity is lost. And we see this in the character, the Patrick Bateman character, who he's not even sure who he is. He's wearing a mask the entire time to kind of blend in as best as possible. But he isn't aware of his own humanity. He experiences no emotion. He's, I think what they're trying to show us is that he's lashing out to try to feel something and trying to seek some kind of like repercussions or consequences or punishment. And jumping ahead to the end, you know, the last line is, uh, this confession has meant nothing because he doesn't experience any repercussions from the events in the film. Uh, Patrick, we'll go to you for your, uh, your response to the Google description and anything that Robert and I have talked about already. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I'd really call it a comedy. I guess upon closer inspection, you find that it's more of a comedy. But I really resonated with the last thing that Robert said because I've really, I've always been a huge fan of this film. And you can kind of hear me fanboy about it a little bit in my episode, which is you can find it at libertyweekly.net forward slash 22. But maybe my, um, the closer I took a look at this film over the years and the, the book that goes along with it, the less that I've come to like it. And one part about the book is that it's a very dry read. And because most of the book is filled with these inane descriptions of exactly what designer is, um, what designer clothes this person is wearing down to, you know, I guess just the the clothing item and the the pattern and the designer. And it's really overkill, but it's making a point. But an interesting note that I found is that if you were to actually see the the clothes, the outfits that the author is describing, it would be absurd. Like nothing matches anything. And that's kind of part of the whole ambiance, the satire of it. But maybe my listeners will know this about me. I was a creative writing major in undergrad at the University of Minnesota. And um, the more that I study about this book and the more I look into it, the more it really reeks of this air that I sensed amongst a lot of my fellow classmates when I was at the university is that it really gets meta to the point that they really it's like South Park. All these uh, all these yuppies in San Francisco think their farts don't stink, so they like to fart and sniff them. Have you seen that? They just think they're so meta. But what Robert said is that they're re- he's really not saying much at all. And the more you look into it, this is not a story about what I wanted it to be about, which is a psych- psychopathic, like, um, yuppie, Wall Street financier, skull and bones type killer. Um, it's really just a Marxist critique of consumerism in the 80s. Yeah, it does seem like it, it is really just kind of like taking on the caricature of capitalism as excess and that Wall Street is people who provide no value but exploit everyone, uh, not only in securing their high six-figure incomes, but also in treating everyone else like garbage, even even their quote-unquote friends. Uh, and that seemed to be the, the critique. Now, I have seen this movie several times, and I've only ever really watched it with the intention of understanding what's going on. 
in the in the past week. And it's it's really weird to me. It's sort of like you'd often or I would often hear songs and like the song, but not know what the lyrics were or know what, you know, maybe half the lyrics were, but not really get the uh, the intention behind it or whatever. And I feel like this movie was sort of similar to that in that it had kind of this cool aesthetic to it. And there was some kind of cheeky, you know, dark humor and, and some like, you know, horror, like slaughtering people and whatever. And, you know, when you're young and dumb and whatever, it's like kind of interesting and, and fun to watch that. But it's like this movie was all just a series of scenes that are memorable, but nothing really connecting them together. And when I watched it the other night with my wife, I was like, yeah, I remember this part, but not this part over here. Like, I remember the iconic shit, you know, where he's listening to, um, God, who is it? Um, Huey Lewis in the news. Yeah, <laughs> Huey Lewis, and he's putting on the the rain jacket, and it's like you're wearing a rain jacket. He's like, "Yes, I am, Paul." And here's an axe, whack, you know. And there's there's probably five or six like iconic scenes that are super memorable, but all those interconnecting bits just kind of just wash over you. At least back when I first watched this, I've seen it probably three or four times, and I think that only now is the first time where I've really tried to pay attention to it. And you're right. It's it it is kind of hollow. You know, it's I don't even know what the story is. What what the arc is? The characters don't learn anything. Things kind of happen, um, or do they? You know, by the end, uh, we're we're not even we're led to believe that our our narrator is unreliable. So we don't know if any of this has happened at all, or if it's all in his head. Like that rampage at the end where he's like shooting back at cops and kills four cops. There would be repercussions from that. I, I can assure you. Uh, so the fact that there aren't any, and, and he's like trying to, con- you know, he did this confession to his lawyer buddy. And then he goes and talks to him at the end. He's like, Hey, that confession, that was me. And, and he, the other guy just plays it off. Like it was some kind of a joke. It kind of leaves us in this spot where, well, if, if he actually did do this stuff, then things would happen to him. But the fact that nobody's believing him, it's almost like, okay, this is all delusions in his head that he might think are real. But no one, you know, they didn't actually happen. Yeah. Are we led to believe that the Paul Allen apartment really was filled with corpses or was it not? I mean, when, and, when he we... just, and he just imagined it at the end, like when he comes in afterwards and it's all cleaned up, was was the real estate agent like just trying to sell the place to the next prospective buyers? Or was he walking in there and expecting a massacre site like he left it, but it really never happened? I mean, I think I... he intended to go clean it up. But then, you know, they're selling it and it's like none of that ever happened. But to me, that real estate lady seemed like she was a little bit too knowing, like maybe she was like a fixer of some sort, like she was in on things. And so it was like this fucking head trip thing. Yeah, you're not in your head, Pat. I'll let you. Well, I mean, I think it's ambiguous, but I think you're right. I think she knew about it and she was trying to cover it up because he went to the closet and she's seemed alarmed by that, you know, like, like, like. She knew that he knew what was there before and she wanted to get him out before, you know, he he uncovered the dirt about it. But going back to this whole idea that everything is um, that he gets away with everything. That is such a leftist neoliberal self critique or critique of capitalism or the excess, the perceived excesses of capitalism. What we know is cronyism, of course, but um, that that. And it goes back to the scene at the beginning of the movie where he they go to the sushi restaurant where everything's in Braille and the goths meet them there. And Patrick Bateman makes this sarcastic comment about how, you know, what we need to do is end apartheid and, and do all these different things. This this agenda that liberals spout but don't really believe through their actions. Um, 
I love that, by the way. It was so contradictory. And he was doing it, it seemed like, to make fun of, you know, people who promote those things. Take up these causes that are unsolvable. Yeah. I liked that because in in some ways, I think it's a self-aware critique of the the liberal mindset because they they say they have these values and um, principles, but they don't really follow up on it. It's just vapid nonsense. Right. Uh, It costs nothing to be to virtue signal. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, yeah, in in you're right, Robert, that was a perfect example of virtue of making fun of virtue signaling back in the 2000s before we even had that phrase. But if you if I could um, if you know Brett Easton Ellis, this is another thing about him is that they made us study him in undergrad. We read less than zero, which is really I think it's about um, a privileged kid with rich parents who is a like heroin addict in L.A. who lives a consequence free lifestyle. But there's no supernatural or like um, sociopathic edge to him, really. It's just kind of um, steeped in in the 80s mystique of consequence-free living and being a privileged white kid in the 80s, um, you kind of realize that Brett Easton Ellis isn't really about necessarily writing what I would like because I'm a horror fan, which would be horror films um, or horror novel novels, rather. He has a really cool um, short story called The Secrets of Summer, which is about a vampire in L.A. who's very rich, uh, Patrick Bateman-esque. Um, but yeah, Brett Easton Ellis is... Um, He's a liberal man. It's hard to to get into the film knowing that. I don't know. Yeah, does that does that change how you perceive things when you know the I don't know the politics or the lifestyle of the creator, the author? It shouldn't, but it does. You know, trying to get into like so I I don't know. My, one of my favorite bands is Napalm Death, and they're raging like anarcho communists. I still love them, but every time I hear them rail about something, you got to pick the good things they rail about. You know, you can't let it ruin your perception of their art. I guess, Robert, you probably have something to say about that. Well, like with well, Rage yeah. Against the Machine, you know, like oh, I yeah. like I like their music, but man, their politics are god awful. Yeah, and they're so well, they're so dumb about it. If we only consume media made by like ancaps and libertarians and stuff, there would be nothing to do. It'd yeah. just be like this show <laughs> and uh, part of the problem by Dave Smith. A couple of podcasts and <laughs> but but watch this, Atlas Shrugged a couple of times. This know. book is vapid. Though in some points, I mean, there, there's good stuff there and there's good critique, like that self-aware conversation we were talking about. Um, but if he in in his own words, Ellis is talking about um, he explains I'm quoting from an article in The Rake that I thought was interesting. First, he talks about how he really set up to um, he studied a lot of New York financiers that he knew and he wanted to base a character off of, you know, the prototypical Wall Street 80s. Uh, yuppie and along the way he was like holy shit this guy's going to be a psychopathic killer so it's not like he set out to write a horror novel or set out to write you know some this um um shit what's the this this book about a psychopathic horror uh serial killer person it's that he wanted to write a critique of capitalism in the 80s and ended up writing patrick bateman well is is the murdering actually a metaphor for exploitation yeah, and how they get away with everything. Exactly. Consequence-free living. But taking advantage of people. He, it's like he's he's taking these... You know how liberals, they always kind of virtue signal about how capitalism kills people and and that kind of thing. This is the the literal undertaking of it, the literal manifestation of it. And well, is he saying that capitalists are a bunch of unfeeling sociopaths, basically? Right. Yeah. Creates this world where we just don't care about other people? 
we're just exploiting everybody all the time. Yeah. I mean, I, I've heard that critique of um, fiduciary responsibility to investors, you know, to the stakeholders and stockholders in a company is that you're supposed to seek profit no matter what in this heartless and unfeeling way. And that seems to be like a thing that is um, just in the in the culture, you know, like that's just what you hear when, when whenever you hear about like how corporations operate in popular culture, even in education. But when you really think about it, you know, what does a business actually do? Well, they try to make a profit by taking inputs and improving upon them so that somebody wants them and is willing to part with their money in exchange for those things to better their own lives. You know, it's solving a problem for them. So everyone benefits. Now, yeah, there's a bunch of bastardization with the corporation structure and lobbying for specific things that uh, offer protectionism or other restrictions, barriers to entry for competition uh, so that you can have shoddier product and lower, um, you know, lower, lower quality and higher prices, you know, it's, it's sort of like a pseudo monopoly situation or a public private partnership situation. But when it really comes down to it is you're only going to patronize uh, a business or a service if it's going to do something for you, or you have a gun to your head. Like when you have to you know, buy certain products because, because the government dictates that you must. Absolutely, Daniel. Well, and what you're saying too is kind of a love story to this idea of a fiduciary relationship um, in the inverse because this legal relationship is super beneficial. I mean, you're talking about some of the, the most sacred things that our legal system defines would be a fiduciary relationship or um, a trustee relationship, something like that. So, yeah. All right. Don't don't go full lawyer on us. That's it. That's all. I've got. <laughs> all right. I remember one of the episodes we did uh, a couple of years ago where you went on this like 20 minute lawyerly rant and it was great stuff, but it was like so dry. Well, that's what you want from when you have a lawyer guest on, isn't it? <laughs> I don't think so, Patrick. <laughs> so this other topic, I'm going to I'm going to I'm host of this now. You're going to hijack? Yeah. Sweet. No, the, I mean, the other thing is. Brett Easton Ellis was saying that the book is really about the dandification of the American male. That's his statement. What do you think about that? I mean, is, is this a book critiquing capitalism or is that part of the dandification of the American male? Can you explain dandification? What is dandification? It was really about, quote, it was really about what is going on with men now in terms of surface narcissism. Beginning in the 80s, men were prettifying themselves. They were taking on a lot of the tropes of gay male culture and bringing it into straight male culture in terms of grooming, looking a certain way, going to the gym, waxing, and being almost the gay porn ideals. You can track that down to the way Calvin Klein advertised underwear in a movie like American Gigolo, The Reemergence of Gentlemen's Quarterly. But would you do that with such a psychotic character? Wouldn't you just try to normalize it? I mean, there were most of the people as friends were also similar, but no one was to the level that Bale was in this film. He was taking it to a whole new level maybe to everybody else. Jared Leto maybe was but yeah, they're maybe. all what you're missing or um you know what the, the person is missing though is w at the beginning scene when they all go to the club you realize that all of bateman's cadre they're all fucking dorks like if you see the guy dancing at the beginning you remember that scene he he looks super lame and he wouldn't be cool except for his suit and the coke in his pocket yeah that's well, that's that one does of the, make people cool that's one of the scenes that i like didn't even remember until i saw it again recently it's like it was just it wasn't iconic and it wasn't filler or it was filler. You know, it was something like when my wife and I were watching it, I was like, well, this is the, um, you know, unrated cut, not the theatrical. And so we thought there might be some extra stuff in there. Turns out there's only 18 seconds extra. So <laughs> the difference is really, really minor. And I was like, well, was this like dancing scene like added? 
And uh, apparently not. It, it, it's in the theatrical cut. And I, I've seen this version three times, four times, and it's there and just not memorable. Yeah, this movie seriously suffers from having like no narrative plot structure. Like Daniel was saying earlier, you a movie is not telling a good story when you can rearrange all the scenes and have it be essentially the same story. And you could rearrange a whole bunch of scenes in this film. You could also remove scenes like the detective. I don't even know what what's the point of him when he was first showed up. I'm like, oh, okay, there's he's going to get investigated. Maybe he's going to get found out. No, just 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 dies. That plot thread just ends at some point. And I, I get it. The movie's trying to make this kind of point that he gets away with it all or it was all in his head. I'm not sure, but it was trying to make a commentary on all this like we've been talking about. But from a narrative plot structure point, it's just a series of garbage scenes. I mean, interesting scenes, but it doesn't come together to form. Like there's no, I mean, there's in sometimes you need to have one before the other, but a whole lot of times you can just rearrange these scenes and have it be the same film. And it, I, like Dan said, you could, you remember scenes, but you don't necessarily remember the plot of this thing. Yeah. And I don't know. It's, I almost want to like apply more sinister stuff to this. Like we talked about the lady who's this real, real estate agent and she seems more knowing than she ought be. Or is that in his head? Yeah. Or is that in his head? Or is this like one of those fucking, um, you know, government psyops where she's his handler and he's responding Manchurian candidate style to stimuli and carrying out these brutal acts and then having these handlers cover up for him. That's some serious fan theorizing. I got he got going there, Daniel. I like it. Almost <laughs> like zero, almost zero evidence in film, but I like it. I don't know, Pat. Do you know more about the book? Is there any any of that, or is this a pretty faithful adaptation? You know, uh, it's relatively faithful, although there is a lot more of those cutaway scenes in the book. A lot more shock violence too. Um, so it, it is it is pretty faithful, but the book is confusing as hell. It's been a couple of years since I read it, um, but I mean, the book is filled with. Granted, it is beautiful prose from a literary sense, but it's really boring to read those parts of it. And you constantly are confused about who's who. Um, I mean, obviously, because everyone's mistaking everyone for everyone else. Um, but it is. Well, and if there's no real plot driving it along, yeah, you're not really anticipating any action or blown away by any particular action. It's well, just stuff happening on screen. like Like the scene where... He's upset about the business cards. Great scene. Yeah. yeah. You could put that any number of places in the movie. That's just one example. There's a pile of them like that. Yeah. All the business cards, like to me, a layperson, looked virtually identical. Which is, I guess, supposed to be the point, right? Like he's so yeah. outraged by just the slightest difference. But then then the nerdiest of them all comes up with a gold gold foil on his card. And that just like pisses him off to no end and, and is is that the moment where he then goes into the bathroom and intends to kill him was it after he sees that card yes yeah yeah right. in the second business card scene yeah when yeah. Uh, the nerdy friend comes up in the, in the restaurant but right. at the same time the, the other guy in their group doesn't care about the business card the one sitting in the corner you know what i'm talking about yeah is it the guy who's like kind of blonde and like you've seen him in a bunch of stuff but you don't know who he is yeah yeah and bateman's the only one that cares but to I wanted to touch on something you said, Daniel, about um, the conspiracy and she's his handler. There was a scene where the detective comes in and he's interviewing Bateman for the first time. And Bateman talks about, oh, he was a part of that whole Yale thing. And I'm thinking Skull and Bones, right? Because you guys remember I'm all about conspiracies, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. John Kerry and George W. Bush were Yale, right? Right. But he's saying, no, the 
what what Yale thing, right? Well, no, it's the uh, closet homosexuality and cocaine thing, not the skull and bones thing. It's cute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's almost like a tactic to um, deflect, right? Can hang out. Yeah, poisoning the well. Yeah, so the Yale thing is closet homosexuality and cocaine. Right. So you, you give it like you give the the overall concept like a little bit of play, but then you deferred it to something else. It's almost like the we've talked about this recently, Robert, where conspiracy theory, that whole concept came from a psyop because people were looking into uh, the JFK assassination. Yeah. Mm. And so the CIA came up with, well, let's just call it conspiracy theory. And that would be just a way to dismiss it out of hand. And you see it today. It's all about, you know, like the, the current pandemic. Well, if anyone questions the narrative. It's conspiracy theory. And so that just means, well, I don't have to submit an Providing, argument. Right. Any evidence, any counter evidence, you just dismiss it as this person must be a crazy. Right. And they've, they've expanded that to mean uh, or to to other phrases like, well, you're a white man. So therefore, you know, irrelevant or whatever. Uh, there's a lot of like throwaway things or like saying it's racist or whatever. Uh, those are ways to squash dissent and not have a valid or legitimate counter argument. I'm not saying that there aren't racist people. Uh, there are, but I'm saying that the way it gets liberally thrown around, uh, especially when it's uh, not intended to be so, or it's an ambiguous interpretation or a least favorable interpretation of certain events, it's it's meant to not have discourse, but to shut down discourse. And you're not going to learn anything from that. And uh, it's a um, it's a tactic to, I guess, safeguard your fragile, you know, echo chamber psyche that you get from social media that uh, I don't know, this is kind of a developing thing in, in my head, but I think social media is, is a continuation or like a, a continuation of echo chambers where you can sort of select which chamber you want to be in and then just get reinforcement, reinforcement, reinforcement. And thus you can believe uh, whatever narrative and facts you want and see them in the light that supports what you think in a preconceived notion and dismiss anything that another person might be doing the exact same thing with, but from another perspective as conspiracy or because they're white male or because they're racist or whatever. Meanwhile, on their side, they're going to do the same shit and think everything that you say is full of shit because it's, you know, leftist or whatever. And I'm not saying that, um, <laughs> I gotta be careful here, but I think most of the time leftists are pretty wrong, but they are occasionally right. Like Robert, you and I have talked about how they are often correct in diagnosing the grievances, like where there is a problem, but they attribute it to the wrong causes. And so therefore they always advocate for more of the same policies or ideas that created the whole part of the whole situation to begin with. Uh, so I don't know, I feel like I'm throwing out this like randomized <laughs> fucking um, concept, but I think you guys get what I'm throwing out there, right? Well, you yeah. said a lot of words there, Daniel. And I do appreciate it when you say a lot words. of platitudes. Well, this, uh, this article I shared with you in, in the chat for the show notes, it talks about Brett Easton Ellis muses about whether or not Patrick Bateman would be active on social media if he were a part of the world today. He thinks yeah, what they conclude. He would be Instagram showcasing his wealth, his abs, and his potential victim, his potential victims. So he'd be like Joe Exotic. Yeah. You know, it's 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 interesting. This is an angle you brought up. And then Robert, I'll go to you because I do want feedback on this like hodgepodge of bullshit I just spouted. But <laughs> Um, I don't know what part of the bullshit to respond to, though, but go ahead. Whatever you want, man. Uh, so there was a, a marketing of the movie that, that happened by Lionsgate or whoever produced this, where they would say, hey, sign up for this email list and you'll get emails from Patrick Bateman himself. 
And so you got to join this like email list and whatever, and it would give you all this uh, background information, emails from Patrick talking about things after the events in the movie and related to the characters in it. And even characters from the book who are like named differently or not even in the movie. And Christian Bale took offense to this because he's like, this isn't the kind of movie that um, you need this kind of shocky marketing. It's not American Pie, you know? So he was very much against this sort of um, this narrative being pushed that it was Patrick uh, Bateman responding to, to people like in this kind of marketing way. And he was he, he felt like people would think that Patrick Bateman was really responding to them. And so I don't know. It's, it's kind of weird. But what? I could see him. Uh... Bale is kind of weird. He's a weird dude. Yeah, he's and... a weird dude. I understand. But I can see him objecting to the marketing strategy. But I can't object in saying him thinking that people would think that Bateman's a real person. What? Yeah, like he thought it was out of character that Bateman would be responding to people. Oh, okay. Okay, so it's out of the character that he created. So yeah. I okay. think so, I, I, yeah. I, but, okay, I feel that. But also, I mean, th this was a movie that, I think this was Bale's big break. Yes, and it made it was his a, career for sure. It was a movie that he had been like um, signed on board for and then let go from and then signed on board for and then let go from for like three or four years. And it ended mm -hmm. up being the one that like made him. Um, but I think he had sort of that crazy um, dedication to his craft. Like you see it in in where he loses tons of weight in The Machinist or he gains a bunch of weight for... Um, Batman or yeah, for he, that other movie he did. Um, what was the Dick Cheney one? Vice? Yeah. Yeah, so he gained a bunch of weight for that and he worked out super super hard for, uh, for Batman and for American Psycho. Um, but I've also seen like behind the scenes footage. Oh, sorry. Behind the scenes footage of him like berating a, a lighting guy. Because yeah, that was he was on the like, set of Terminator 3. Yeah, because he's like... Famous incident. In the way of some shot or whatever. And he's like, do you yeah. see me going through and fucking up your lighting situation? You know? Yeah, so pretty rant. He kind of had his like prima donna uh, shit already happening, uh, it seems, early on. I mean, he's a great actor. I love his work. I think he's great. For the most part. I mean, the Terminator 3, not so good. There's a few movies where he's like kind of hamming it a little bit. Or it comes off hammy. Because I think maybe he's trying too hard, especially for the tone of the movie yeah i mean he definitely comes off as a very dedicated actor more of a high strung type not so much the laid back type so i can see why he would be berating some camera guy as opposed to say like the guy well who's the guy who played the big lebowski jeff jeff bridges yeah yeah i don't i don't think there's any dirty tapes on him just like or, chewing some poor staffer out or like mcconaughey yeah no mcconaughey i'm sure he's pretty chill to hang out with but you know you yeah. get you get you know, you get the good with the bad. You get you get that high, strong, super dedicated actor who's going to bring life to this weird role. You know, it's going to come at some cost. You can't just be a normal dude and lose 100 pounds of body weight in like three months or gain 100 pounds of body weight in three months and be totally normal. Not expect some kind of deficiencies mentally or something. I mean, he's going to have some bad days. He's going to he's going to be hangry. <laughs> yeah, he's going to need a Snickers, man. I mean, you know, I wouldn't want to hang out with that guy. Yeah. So back to my like sort of randomized thesis. Uh, is there any part of it on which you, you have any comment? Well, you're talking about like the echo chamber of different ideologies. I mean, yeah, we all have that desire to have our beliefs reinforced. And with the Internet and other forms of especially increasingly stratified media, it's easier and easier to find your groups and your niche and to have your beliefs reinforced over and over again, even though it's also just as easy to go and see the opposing view or at least a, at least a different opinion, if not completely opposing. 
Um, it's just less people are less and less likely to do that. I mean, you got a limited amount of time in your day and you want to get, you want to feel good. You don't want to necessarily have to do some hard thinking and question your beliefs and whatnot. That's, that's not nearly as fun. I mean, there are some people that do it. They're very, very few. You got like maybe 1% of the population that's really enjoying, you know, that kind of mental challenge. But most people like to like to live their lives and uh, feel good in uh, their views. And you're not going to feel good in your views if you're constantly um, having your beliefs challenged. It's easier to see some opposing piece of information and dismiss it and say that it was made by bigots or, you know, whatever. Yeah, patriarchy. <laughs> Have you guys noticed this in the libertarian community? Uh, I try not to pay too much attention to the libertarian community anymore. <laughs> what now, Patrick? Wise choice. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I have hundreds of friends on Facebook who are in the libertarian community. And um, it's like just scrolling through the timeline. You just see the same shit over and over and over and over and over again. Just Yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing that gets me is at least libertarians are often consistent or at least they have, have a lot of consistency than, than most folks. Like I, my wife, she has a friend who espouses these platitudes that are fluffy and duffy and flowery and sound nice and well-intentioned and woke or virtuous or whatever. But then the next statement out of this person's feed is something totally contradictory. And it's like, they don't even notice it. It's, it's really a bizarre situation where they like pretend to uh, have these opinions that are principled and have these positions, but then they'll say something completely the opposite, like moments later, and not notice that there's any discrepancy between those two positions at all. What's your take on that, Pat? Do you see some some similar even in the libertarian community, or mostly outside of it? Well, I mean, it's mostly outside of it. I I mean, it's hard to say because in the libertarian community, you get, I guess, nuance on certain issues. Like, um, I mean, you get some contention on certain issues, you know, like borders or. Uh, prostitution or sex work, that kind of thing. But more so in the libertarian community, you get this. And I, I've just had, you know, such burnout too. And that's another reason why I don't do my show anymore. But you get also get the sense that and I've gone through this in my own journey as a libertarian, but there's this overwhelming sense that everything is black and white. And that doesn't really mean that libertarianism is wrong. Uh, it just means that they're is this tendency to think that you're superior just because you have the non-aggression principle and private property rights, but you still, you can never stray from this black and white thinking. And my, my legal practice and the experience that I've had in the real world, and I hate that phrase because it's kind of elitist, but there's a lot more nuance. And Andrew Kern is, uh, I think, I think he's right about this. He's, you know, a principled libertarian, but he's had a lot of good critiques that and he's really shaped a lot of my own thinking on on these topics. But he's had a lot of good critiques of the community and the theory. Um, he's right that and he had a little spar with Dave Smith. Did you guys see that a couple months ago? Where Dave yeah. read some of his articles and I, I don't always agree with Andrew Kern, but he's he's right in that libertarians tend to see things in black and white, and that's not what the world is. Yeah, I'm starting to recognize that as well myself that there's a lot of nuance to um, all sorts of issues and. The NAP, while it's a nice cornerstone, it doesn't give you the answer to everything. And in a way, I think I've been influenced by people who want to um, talk about culture and cultural differences between people and, and celebrating cultural differences and advocating for ones that uh, help advance society. You know, and if, if other people want to have other cultures, that's fine. But 
It doesn't mean that we need to amalgamate or homogenize culture. Like the differences are a good thing, uh, I think. And and maybe that, that might be the end result of all this pain that we're experiencing with social media, allowing people to stratify and, and like um, fragment. Maybe that will come into a, a real world situation where people will secede. And those who wish to live certain ways can be, you know, in a geographic area where that's like a thing that's part of that culture and other people can be in another area where other things are part of their culture. And I don't think that necessarily needs to be a bad thing. Uh, I don't know where it's going to go, but I don't see the current situation as being tenable all that much longer where there's this massive, you know, 330 plus million people all kind of subservient to a a small um, city on the Potomac. I would like to be in agreement with you, Daniel. I just, uh, I, uh, I tend to think that the uh, status quo has a serious um, like stranglehold on the minds of most of the people around here. And uh, I, I know for one, I've felt more and more alone, I guess you could say, um, with all the actions of the people as a result of this pandemic um, and, the, and the absolute lockstep go along status of the vast majority. You know, what's great about this whole pandemic thing. It's like, all the previous enemies have been defeated or shown to be not that bad. And so now they're like, okay, well, let's come up with something that's even going to fragment libertarians, you know, let's scare the shit out of people and have them exchange their freedom for security. And so many people gave that bargain, you know, accepted that bargain way more than I thought. And, and we've sort of talked about this on previous shows where I was, I was dismayed uh, by how much more outnumbered we are than I ever thought that we were. But the more that this goes on, the more that these lockdowns go on, I think the more that people are starting to realize that these betters, these experts are really full of shit and that they're not looking out for your best interest. They're looking out for their best interest. And they're not always right. They're not infallible. And they don't look at all of the costs and benefits and analysis of what the consequences of their actions are going to be. They are the Patrick Bates of the situation. They are the ones living the consequence-free life. And they've been getting away with it for a long, long time. And maybe now we're starting to see the emperor is in fact not wearing any clothes, not even those like $3,000 suits and the fucking, you know, masks and the creams that Patrick Bateman's putting on in this movie, uh, that these people are actually monsters. And, you know, this the striking thing that really showcases this for me is the uh, directors of health for the various cities and counties and states uh, and even countries who go up there and tell us how to live, uh, you know, healthy in this pandemic. And they are the most unhealthy looking people I've ever seen. You know, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you got to trust the experts. Well, let's see what the experts look like. And they don't look great. Yeah. And and it's not like necessarily that they're wrong, but, you know, Steph always had this argument. Well, who are you going to take health advice from? You know, somebody who looks trim and fit and eats well and exercises or somebody who has the exact same information but they're morbidly obese. Obviously, one's going to have more weight, wink, wink, than the other. Uh, and so, you know, one's going to have more credibility and another's not. That's right, buddy. And that goes back to nuance, like you were talking about, Patrick. Like, it's not just the argument, because they could be saying the exact same thing, but one is going to be more acceptable to people than the other based on who's delivering it and the lifestyle that they chose. You know, if, if they're going to live by the principles that they espouse, then it's going to hold a lot more credence for people. I've become, I mean, I was going back on the episodes we've had and, you know, all the State of the Libertarian Union podcasts that we've had. I'm such a doomer and gloomer. 
but it's gotten even worse with all this. I mean, talk about feeling alone and it, it's been like in some instances, my, like my parents have become a lot more red pilled because of this in a good way. Um, but even so, even the people that are kind of awake and questioning the narrative, they're still within that three by five index card. They're still within the spectrum of acceptable opinion. And yes, I mean, being opposed to the lockdown, they're not opposed to the lockdown because they necessarily care about, you know, intangibles like the bill of rights or, or freedom or Liberty. They're the vast majority of people are, uh, inconvenience. And it's not that they have a principled stance per se. It's just that, you know, or if they're avoiding the lockdown, it's just because they are sick and tired of not seeing their family. And, and in some ways that's a really good thing, but the, the being alone because you're the only ones that see the world the way that we do, it's still, it's even more isolating than it was before, you know? Yeah. I, I see a lot of that. And, and I was in that phase a, a little while ago, a little while ago, you know, speaking of phases of reopening, but I've gotten a little bit more um, uplifted by like, I, I've only been to the store three times since the lockdowns even went into effect. And the first time things were kind of normal, you know, you can, I felt like I was like an early adopter of like, okay, I'm going to fucking stock up on stuff. I'm going to get chickens. I'm going to you know get as much as I can while my money still spends. And then I went again, like maybe a month, month and a half later, and things were even weirder but still fairly normal. Like I was able to get, um, you know, into the store. They had a limited number of people who were allowed to be in and not everything was there on the shelves, all the frozen stuff and a lot of the meat was gone, things like that. But then I went just a few days ago and yeah, there's still like supply chain disruptions and there's been a lot of destruction in the structure of production when it comes to foods and, you know, slaughtering of animals and underturning of crops because of regulations and other things preventing those things from actually making it to market and whatnot. And I think that we're going to see a lot of those repercussions down the road. Uh, and it's going to be a, a very difficult pill for people to swallow come in three or four months from now, I think. But the people's opinion of the, the people I talked to, like there was an old lady, she wasn't wearing a mask. She got within three feet of me, was talking to me about things. And she was like, yeah, this is bullshit. You know, like I have this, uh, you know, generative thing. I haven't used it. I don't, don't even think I need it anymore. And uh, this other lady was like, uh, excuse me, I need to get by. And she was wearing a mask and there was plenty of room for her to get by, but not six feet of room. So, you know, it was a little bit hit or miss. Then I talked to the checker and he was like, yeah, I think people are kind of over this now. Like we've been really busy. It's Memorial Day weekend. People are like fed up with this shit and they're ready to just move on. You know, it, it, the numbers have not panned out in the doomers um, predictions and there's a, a minute increase in your daily risk of living, but there's risk in everything. And this is, you know, what a shark attack or a lightning strike, or, you know, maybe it's more risky than that, but it's not like you're definitely going to get this and you're definitely going to die. Like what they tell you on the news. Uh, like if you were to go uh, to Patrick Bateman's apartment, uh, for the most part, you were probably going to die except for his secretary, Jean. Um, maybe we can tie this back to the movie. Why did he spare her in your in your opinion, Pat? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe because she was different than every one of his victims. She was she wasn't quite as aloof. She was more naive, perhaps. What do so you maybe think? this goes back to the um, caricature of capitalism, where the people don't have an identity. They're exploiting each other. They don't know who they are or who their friends are, and it's not important to them to know who those people are. And so it was easier for Patrick Bateman to kill them. Because it didn't matter, because it was 
he was looking for humanity. He didn't see it. He didn't see it in himself. He didn't see it in them. So killing them was like a nothing thing. And he was looking for something, some kind of consequence, some kind of humanity. And perhaps he found it in Jean because she wasn't vapid. She wasn't empty. She wasn't sure what she wanted to do, but she wasn't, she also wasn't like so cocksure uh, yet so empty that it, it would have been like easy for him to just be like, well, she's, you know, useless eater, whatever mouth breather. <laughs> and so he spared her. But the other, the other side of that was that um, his fiance left him a message while she was there. And there was a little bit of this, like he's saying one thing and she's hearing another. He's like, Oh, it's not safe for you to be here. I'm not sure I can control myself. Uh, something bad might happen to you. I don't want to hurt you. And she hears, Oh, I don't want to get emotionally involved with you, or I don't want us to get physically intimate because I've got this fiance and that's going to end up getting you hurt because you know, you're always attracted to guys who are un unattainable or unavailable or whatever. But what he means is, no, it's not safe because I'm going to murder you. You know, so it was like a little bit of that, like the words meant something different to uh, either side of the, uh, of the table in that exchange. And I thought that was actually a pretty, pretty nice um, moment in the movie, a nice scene to see yeah. that. It was a decent little scene, although I don't really understand why he wanted to kill her in the first place. Like his motivations, in one point in the movie, he says he can only feel two things, greed and disgust. And you're right, maybe he doesn't feel disgust about her. I thought originally he was going to kill her because she knew the detective was chasing him and maybe she had some kind of insight on some murders or something. But then, then he didn't kill her, so then that couldn't be it. Uh, unless he wanted to get caught, like sort of at the end. I, I don't know, it was all kind of all confusing to me. Well, but there was the whole, like, he has this, like, crazy bloodlust urge, like when he kills the homeless guy early on and then stomps out the dog, which, man, that was, like, <laughs> that was the scene that really bothered me the most out of this whole movie was when he stomps the dog. I mean, Can't like, kill a dog, man. Kill three. as many prostitutes as you want. Can't kill a dog. How come the Blue Liners can get away with it? Daniel, I'm telling you. Yeah, I don't I'm know. <laughs> that, was the, that was the thing that really bothered me. But, you know, him killing that guy... Was that out of disgust? He's like, why don't you get a job, man? Like, mm -hmm. did you just like drink yourself out of a job or whatever? So that was him being the evil capitalist exploiter saying, why don't you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you bum? But why did he kill his the people that were just like him, though? Was he disgusted at himself? And that's it? Because he killed uh, Paul Allen, who was basically his clone. But his better. He had a nicer apartment. He had a nicer business card. Right. Better girlfriend or whatever. Right, and then he ended up using that apartment. So I guess you could say it's greed, but not necessarily. I mean, he took his identity, sort of. Right, which he didn't really have much of an identity himself. Like, he talks about that during his routine of getting himself cleaned up. He's like, I wear this mask of humanity, but there's nothing behind this mask. Like, Patrick Bateman isn't even a real thing. Yeah, so what do you think, Daniel? Is this movie deep or shallow? <laughs> really got something to say here? Or is it a collection of scenes of, like, cool fight-killing scenes? I want to say that... And we can get in some final summary review unless you guys have any other notes. We can just get into that now. And I'll just, fine, let's do that. So, yeah, I think that this movie, upon initial viewings, it is just a series of cool scenes mixed in with not so cool scenes that aren't really there to tie anything together. Like there isn't a whole lot of a strong narrative or a story arc. No, nobody learns anything in this. Um, and so, yeah, I liken it to music and, and a catchy beat and you know, a nice hook. And, and that's pretty much it. And that's the various scenes that, that you remember. And then the rest of it is just kind of there and you don't notice it until you're really paying attention, but uh, it has a nice style to it. Um, 
Bale's performance is really good. Uh, I think that perhaps to your question, Robert, it has a bit of a cult following because you can maybe read a bigger and deeper message into these things. Like I sort of tried to do earlier today <laughs> with uh, the whole idea of him being a psyop and having a handler and whatnot, but it also being a critique of capitalism or consumerism or vapidness of, of the eighties and the go-go culture of wall street and all of those things. And so perhaps it, it is back to that, you know, that old trope of the subjective, subjective experience, the viewer's experience that they bring to something in, in their viewing of it that can lend it some more meaning than it might otherwise have. Uh, so I want to say that it's not a great movie. Um, if you apply some ideas to it and, and read certain context into it, then maybe it can mean something more. But as a standalone movie telling you a story, uh, it's really just empty scenes mixed in with some kind of interesting scenes that are memorable. And, and then it's kind of over and you're not sure whether it really happened or not. Uh, so with that, I'm not going to give it a very strong, uh, recommendation, but it's still a black and gold, uh, just not super strong. If, if I were applying a number to it, I'd probably give it a six. Uh, so, uh, Robert, let's get your response on that and then your take. Yeah. If this movie ended where it was a definitive, haha, suckers, it all was all in his head. I'd be like, uh, it's garbage movie, total, complete garbage. I hate that kind of whole fake out thing. So I'm going to take it as he really did kill all those people and everything we saw really did happen. I prefer to watch it that way. Um, I like You can play around with unreliable narrators, but I think you got to do it in a better way. Um, in this movie, yeah, I capitalism always gets like these evil, maniacal corporate leaders or psychopathic killers as, as, as the worst, as the worst uh, examples of capitalism. And this gets kind of like, Look what could happen under capitalism. You can't have this. But then they, people don't point at like the founder, which is a very, I think, honest view of what capitalism actually is. I mean, it's about McDonald's. People complain about McDonald's. At least they used to back in the day. Maybe they still do. I don't know. Maybe people have kind of gotten over McDonald's. It's not the big boogeyman that it used to be. But once upon a time, it was one of the evil corporations that's making us all fat and going to kill us all with heart disease. Maybe there's people still that think that, but it used to be one of the big boogeyman com companies. And the founder... It's all about how it started. So it's got to be all about evil capitalists, right? But I, I dare you to watch the founder and go, man, look at these evil capitalists. I, I just don't think it's there. So if you really want a better example of what capitalism, I think watch that film. But this one, uh, yeah, I, I think, like I said, it's it's a series of flashy scenes that's trying to find a plot somewhere. It's It, it ends up being a better character study than a narrative film. But when it got to the end, I was like, wait, was that it? I thought he, when... The big cop chase scene was going to happen. Then he gets caught. And then, you know, he ends up dying in a big shootout at the end or something like something happens. The guy, some kind of conclusion. But instead it was, you know, he can't actually get caught. And then there's sort of sort of like lesson there to be learned. It didn't it didn't resonate with me. I appreciated that they're doing something different, but I don't I don't recommend this film to to like the the cult filming following that it has. I. I don't recommend it to like a wider audience to go see. I, I think this is like a, a three and a half, maybe a four. It's just, wow. it's, it's just not great. It's just not, it's, there's a whole lot of style, right? I mean, it's like basically taking like reservoir dogs. I'm going to put on some music and murder people. And talk about it intellectually. And talk about it intellectually while I'm murdering you. So yeah, Quentin Tarantino did it like 13 years before you. So congratulations. Uh, I don't know. It seemed like it was a try hard film. I, Bale's performance was perfectly fine and it had a kind of an interesting angle and style to it, 
but ultimately it didn't resonate with me. All right. And we'll go over to Patrick Bateman himself, Pat McFarland of LibertyWeekly.net. Yeah. Um, bouncing off that, I kind of touched on this earlier, but I, I really think that, you know, Brett Easton Ellis is the babe of English departments at Big Ten universities or, you know, English departments and universities across the country. They, they really kind of move towards um, having these newer authors be part of the syllabus or the syllabi. And I think a lot of it is they're a lot more meta than they think they are. And they're a lot more um, into their own, their own work and the work of the scene than maybe they should be all in all. I think a lot of the cult following behind this film, and maybe I'm speaking to my own experience, but a lot of the cult following in this film is because people mistake it for what they want it to be or what I would like it to be, which is a really gory horror film. Uh, But what it really is, I think is kind of a shallow take on, consumerism and capitalism something that takes itself more seriously than perhaps it should and maybe that's our own bias maybe it is a really brilliant work that really um disassembles everything that we believe in here at the show uh which is voluntary exchange capitalism but um i don't know all in all like i said upon subsequent viewings and deeper exploration Every time I watch the movie, it means a bit less to me and is a bit more shallow. So I'll give it six and a half or a seven because I, at one point in time, I really adored this film for its shock value. And I think that's most of what it has is shock value. And upon deeper exploration, um, it's a little, it leaves you wanting. But I, I forgot to mention my grandma babysat Willem Dafoe when he was a kid. I don't know if I mentioned this to you guys. I've heard it. Have you? Okay. We've talked to Willem Dafoe before, but uh, she babysat him in Appleton, Wisconsin in the 1940s. So there you go. There's my connection. He's in a lot of great stuff. I, I like him as an actor. He's uh, yeah. He's got that creepy vibe to him. He's got a, when he's older, well, he's, he's older now, but like he's got that Christopher Walken creep to him. Yeah. Yeah. And there's nobody else quite like him. And he's always pretty magnetic on screen. So yeah, he brings a really good uh Did you see the presence? Light? The Lighthouse. You saw The Lighthouse? I haven't seen The Lighthouse, but I saw a review of The Lighthouse where people were just raving about it. Then I went and checked the Amazon reviews, and half were going, this is the most incredible thing I've ever seen, and the other half were like, this is absolute garbage trash. Yeah. Which so side of the line are you on on that, Patrick? You want me to go into a big soliloquy here? <laughs> you know. you like out of time? I think it's intense. I think it's good. It's very deep. I didn't get rap music before, but then I saw Tyler, the creator, one of his music videos and i was like shit there's so much going on here and i don't get any of it and that's kind of what the lighthouse was okay yeah you know, I, when i first saw american psycho i thought oh this is a good movie i don't but i i couldn't tell you why other than the flash and the style and whatever and it sticks with you like you know how many movies have come out since then and, and how many do you remember this is in that 10 percent that you remember for whatever reason yeah the flash the flash me, though of um when i've my taste in music really matured um i have a rule that i can't give i mean you can't give judgment on an album unless you've heard it 10 times and if i heard it for the first or the second time and i didn't like it i still have to invest three or four more listenings into it before i can really tell if there's something there or there's not something there and this is a movie i've seen three or four times maybe five or six and i'm realizing there's not as much there as i thought before yeah yeah this is the um whatever the commercialized pop it gets trotted out and like everyone thinks is good for a little while and then turns out it's actually garbage. Yeah, that's Brett Easton Ellis for the whole, you know, <laughs> community, all the trendy, trendy, 
Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you for uh, for being our guest. I hope you can stick around for just a little bit of uh, Kathleen Turner Overdrive, which is available for our Patreon supporters at lastnighters.com slash Patreon. It's some bonus content we do. We also do pre-show content. So if you send us a couple of Federal Reserve notes um, on a monthly basis, you can get access to most of that, as well as the live streams, which we're doing presently. And uh, speaking of presently, Robert, I have a present for you, and that is one of the podcasts that you like is going to be a guest on our show, this podcast that uh, you maybe like a little bit. Um, we're going to have Prof. CJ from the Dangerous History podcast on for the 75th anniversary of D-Day, the Storming of Normandy, June 6, 1944. Can I guess the film? You can guess the film, yes. Well, it can't be about a guy named Ryan. You're not going to try and save him. It is, yeah. And I guess I guess it was 45, right? It must have been. Why did I say 44? It's been 75 years. This is 2020, right? I think it's 2020. I'm pretty sure. I don't know. Wait, so you're fucking following me up with Prof. CJ? Fuck you guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're setting the table, baby. It's all I'm, right. I'm an eclectic, you know, C, C role libertarian community star, and you're following me up with an A-lister. Fuck off. Well, I want to say that, that we've been trying to get a few A-listers on this show, and, and uh, we've had a few um, shots across the bow, and they didn't work out. And uh, this one seems to be pretty, pretty solid. So we'll see how it goes. But uh, he's a good dude, and he uh, he's agreed to come on. And Saving Private Ryan will be the movie, and we will uh, be doing that next week. Uh, so hold on to your hats, everyone. We're going to be getting into another war movie. Uh, we did Apocalypse Now last week, which I thought was a really great episode. We had uh, John Reed on for that, and he's a bit of a film analysis uh, buff himself. And uh, I think that one was a lot of fun. I had a good conversation. And Robert, Robert, I think this also was a good conversation with our buddy Pat. Yeah, I tend to agree with you, Dan. You might be right. All right. Thank you. Well, why don't you remind the uh, contestants what they can win if they support the show and the various ways in which they can do so before we get into the Kathleen Turner Overdrive? Oh, so many virtual, like, feel-good moments. It just tickles your 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 giblets. I mean, you really feel the 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 moral superiority, and just you feel like a rock star, like the best human on the planet when you uh, when you support the show. Yeah, I mean, there's really no other feeling quite like it when you click that Patreon donate dollar button. Mm. I mean, it's not quite like you know the birth of your first child, but it's it's somewhere towards the bottom of that list. So you might want to go do it. Support us on that. You got the Apple peoples, you know, with the podcast, you could like give us some stars, give us some reviews there. You can like subscribe to us on the tubes. You could like reply to one of our videos. You can like click a like button. You can do all those things and more if you're uh, feeling uh, up to it. And if you're cool, just want those virtual hugs. And and, and unless you have got a bunch of tapes you need to return. Yeah. Speaking of tapes to return, uh, we do have a few tapes to return to the video store. So uh, check this out at lastnighters.com slash. 126 for show notes and more and we will uh say the old good night from last night everyone peace out and as per usual before we get into the uh caffeine turn drive i have another few moments of actual anarchy to talk to you guys about. And I actually have saved the question for this. We sort of broached this subject earlier on when uh, we brought up the idea of does the uh, political or otherwise orientation of the author color the work, the artist, the artistry or the art, does it color the art when you um, know more about the particular artist? And so to that end, Brett Easton Alice, uh, or Ellis 
in many, many interviews, gave conflicting information on his sexual orientation because he didn't want to have people perceive his art in a different way uh, than they would otherwise not knowing that information. And so he would give uh, that he was straight or that he was bi or that he was whatever else and uh, always conflict the information in order to obfuscate uh, so that people would read his work, read into his work, not with a particular bent. Um, Do you think that plays into a legitimate concern? Because I tend to see there is a point to that. Like even when J.K. Rowling came out and said, well, Dumbledore is gay in uh, Harry Potter. I was like, well, what consequence is that? <laughs> like, why is why is that a big deal? Like, who cares? But, um, you know, knowing that there's a certain past or a certain history or a certain, like, certain amount of information about a particular character or the artist creating it, I think it does perhaps change how you can perceive the art itself. So, Robert, I'm going to get your take on that because you're a bit of an artist yourself. And I, I've known you for a long time, but other people who appreciate your work might have their opinions of your art changed as they learn more about you. What do you think of that? I think that's natural and normal. I don't necessarily, I mean, I, you can definitely remove the artist from the art it, just because, you know, it, most art is not political. You're just trying to tell a good story, but some of your political beliefs will find their way onto the page. That's certainly true. But just like anything else, I mean, you can just discount the parts you don't like. You don't necessarily have to believe it. I mean, it's not like, you know, there's the complaint that people will just, well, all he does is sit around and watch Fox News. As if you agree with everything you're watching on Fox News, you can read all kinds of different material and you could have a copy of Mein Kampf on your shelf. That doesn't mean you agree with it or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I could see the temptation for a particular artist to live a particular lifestyle or project a certain image for, you know, to seem seemingly appeal to a wider audience. You know, there's like, don't have girlfriends because if they did, it would kill their sales. So, I mean, I'm not against it. It's, it's kind of sad, but if you want to appeal to that Midwestern, whatever demographic or what have you, you know, sometimes that's what you got to do. If, if that's, you think that if you kind of like, don't respect your audience enough, then you will pander to the lowest common denominator of what you think the audience is, as opposed to respecting their intelligence and actually just being who you are and saying, yeah, if you like it, check it out. Yeah. And I think that's interesting. And I'm glad you brought up the whole um, uh, angle of Fox News and journalism uh, in particular, because I think that whatever the political orientation of the journalist often colors how I view their work. uh, And it makes me um, quick to dismiss them if they're of a particular bent, because, well, they're usually historical hysterical or wrong uh, when it comes to certain things, even if they actually do have a good argument in there. And, and I think that's uh, something to be very careful of to not overlook that. Um, but uh, as with most things, it's a, what do you call it, a rule of thumb or a, a um, stereotype where most of the time you're right and occasionally you can be wrong. And <clears throat> Pat, I'll direct this portion of the question to you. It's kind of related, but the scene in the bathroom where he's going to kill the nerdy guy who uh, professes that he actually is in love with Bateman and he takes his murder attempt as a coming on to him. Do you think that that scene gets perceived differently if Brett Easton Ellis is a part of the patriarchy and a, you know, a guy who dates a lot of women or if he's a gay dude? I think that changes the scene and how it's perceived. Like he gets a pass on that scene based on who he is versus if someone else made this movie or wrote this book, they would not get the pass. 
based on who they are. Wait a minute. Before Pat actors answers that, is is it a thing in the gay culture to put on black gloves and strangle each other as a come on? <laughs> you tell me. Is that like a pickup line? You're like, hey, I could strangle the hell out of you. We're this question to Pat, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, whoever knows the answer. I, I'm not making any judgments. I definitely know the answer. Okay. Well, um, I don't know. It, it kind of plays into what you what your whole theory of literary criticism is. I not to get too over the top, but one of the tests, one of the big tests is the test of time is probably the gold standard for liber or excuse me, literary criticism. And through the lens of 2020, does that change the perception of the bathroom scene? Yeah, definitely. Um, does it between, you know, the sexual orientation of the author? Maybe it does, but that's only if you really care about the author's intentions. And that that is a, you know, a lens of literary criticism. And it's actually a lens of literary criticism literary criticism that literary critics don't really give a fuck about is what the author intended. And that's what I was trained. Um, then again, I was trained in a Marxist intersectional literary department, English department. Um, but they don't really care what the author's intention was or the artist's intention. I was taught at least that true meaning comes from the conversations that the audience has about the work. And well, that's going to change over time. And, and we've seen that with films. We'll often on this show talk about, well, this movie couldn't be made today because it would be found to be too offensive. And you see those YouTube videos of like millennials reacting to like uh, Blazing Saddles or something like that. And they're like totally offended. They need a safe space or whatever. Um, and so there's like the argument, well, that's of the time of the culture um, or it's meant to be a comedy. It's meant to be racy. It's meant to, you know, instigate. Um, and uh, I think even Tropic Thunder, people were recently complaining about Robert Downey Jr. doing blackface and that, and that movie's like 10 years old or 15 years old now. When did that come out? It came out a while ago, 2006, maybe like Oh nine, something like that. Oh, 10. Okay. It's only been like 10 years, but like, you know, back then there was a little bit of pushback and now it's like, Oh, he's needs to be canceled because he did something 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Yeah, but he's he's a darling of the left. So, I mean, although there have been some casualties on the left, for sure, from the, the cancel culture. Well, they I they eat their own. Yeah, that maybe that's what kills this uh, Karen culture is when what I think and I was watching Tim Poole react to this uh, black face of Jimmy Fallon, um, which about I hate all those late night TV shows like that. Um, but he was saying. I don't know, something about how in Tropic Thunder they give Robert Downey Jr. a pass because he was actually, his intention was to comment on um, blackface and saying that it was stupid to wear blackface while doing blackface. Um, do we care about the author's intention or what have you? But maybe that's how the whole outrage culture ends is when the left uh, is the target of outrage culture, but then the collective um, says, oh, well, it's okay when he does it. Then they Then they take this, you know the rightist or the cultural right view of it. And maybe that's when it ends. I don't know when they start eating themselves, but then they start pardoning themselves. Yeah. Well, if they understood uh, consistency, I think you might have a point, but I, I think that's lost on them, unfortunately. Yeah. But anyway, these are interesting things to ponder. And, and we've talked about these things on the, in, on the show in the past, and uh, I'm sure we will continue to do so in the future, but I think that's going to end it for tonight. Uh, so Pat, thank you again for being our guest. Uh, people can find your work at libertyweekly.net. Also, the show notes page for this will have all of your past appearances. Uh, so at actualanarchy.com slash 183. Uh, we'll also have links to your the summer series we've done with you on Star Trek The Next Generation, as well as Wild Wild Country. 
And uh, we also ruined Rogue One for a few people um, on your very first appearance way back when you were just a wee babe. And uh, so we will have all that on here. So libertyweekly.net, do check that out, everyone. Uh, Pat's a good guy. He's not as active on uh, the old uh, podcast scene because of the uh, growing up and being a man, being a, a parent and a dad and all that stuff. But uh, I think that you, um, if you can find the time and make the time to do so, your voice is definitely worth hearing. And so that's why we love having you on. And, and uh, you've been a good friend for a long time. So I'm happy to have been able to have you on and uh, talk with you again, Pat. And uh, next week, we're going to have mm-hmm. Prop CJ for the old Saving uh, Ryan's Privates uh, for the 75th anniversary of D-Day. Wait, did I say the, the porn name version? I think I did. Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> next what week. movie do I have to watch? Okay. Yeah, right. Like you don't have both. Come on, man. Yeah, I'm just saying. Which one do I need to watch? <laughs> All right, everyone. We'll uh, peace out and uh, maximum freedom. We'll see you guys next week. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do